0: This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with the novelist Anita Desai. I spoke with her on December nineteenth, two 2013, from Paya Studio at On Being on Loring Park in Minneapolis. She was at Argo Studios in New York. You can download the MP3 of our produced show with Anita Desai at OnBeing.org. So um, how are we? Oh, I don't know. Uh, did they tell you that you are our very first guest in for for me recording here in our brand new studio so you have an historic place now (laughs) in our show's life
1: (laughs) it's very exciting. happy to see it yeah
0: so chris how are we doing okay Uh, We're pretty good. Um, Anita, I just want to caution you about um, when you're speaking, be careful about rubbing your hands on your clothing or whatever. I mean, you can hold your arms and everything as you want, but just Mm -hmm. while you speak, try not to... Uh,
1: Do you hear me when I touch this? I try to avoid doing that.
0: Yeah, do you want me to move that so it's not on you? Uh,
1: I don't know if it can be done. Yeah, let me... I can move this this way. Maybe. Maybe. That, that, that might be is better. Is that better? Yes. Just the headphone thing. Okay? Yes.
0: Okay. I think we're good to go if you guys are. Okay. All right. Um, so I, I wanted to just start by asking a question of, about you, and and Tagore may or may not be uh, be implicated <laughs> in your answer, um, and and then we'll just really focus in on him. But um, I wonder if you just say a little bit about the the spiritual and literary background of your childhood, and and also whether those two things were were connected in in your imagination growing up.
1: Well, I should tell you that. Everyone assumes that Tagore was part of my heritage. My father was from Bengal. And uh, it should have been, but strangely enough, it, he was not. Because my father had left Bengal and settled in the north of India in Old Delhi, which is where I grew up. And um, for some reason, he never uh, expected us to learn Bengali or to really go, really become aware of our Bengali background, partly because we were living in Old Delhi, very, very different place, partly because my mother was not Bengali, she was German. Right. And uh, the two of them spoke German to each other, my father having studied in Germany, yeah. which is the language I grew up hearing and <laughs> speaking as an infant, as a Oh, child. I didn't realize that, yeah. And it was much later in life that I felt this was wrong and I really must learn Bengali now, so I, I took, I went to a class and started studying Bengali. But um, when I came upon Tagore's work, and never through my father, he never yeah. handed me a book by Tagore or talked of him, but when I started reading Tagore, I thought, well, he was describing my father's background. Right. My father himself was a man of very few words A you know, uh, silent, withdrawn person, very reserved
0: yeah, Say say but, some more uh, about that, about how reading Tagore uh, uh, You've also written has kind uh, of recreated your father's world In uh-huh. a way that he didn't or couldn't describe for you yeah,
1: My father had always given us just a few small hints Little stories about Bengal Which were so evocative and mm-hmm. when you tell them to a child especially, they tend to make a great impression, certainly they did on me. For instance, he remembered a time uh, living in, you know, small towns, small villages in in Bengal, then East Bengal, how the postman used to walk through the forest ringing a bell mm-hmm. to scare off tigers and he would <laughs> chant, make way for the for the." Male um and uh I thought that was so strange, living in old Delhi, where the post was delivered in a much more prosaic way yeah. things that uh, how he how my father used to play football fanatically fanatically the way all Bengalis do as a child, and always played barefoot, he said every bone in his foot had been broken playing football barefoot. <laughs> And uh, chiefly, what I the picture he created for me with these few few things that he told us was of a wonderfully green and riverine landscape, which would be so utterly different from arid, dusty Delhi hmm. and the north of India. It was a land crisscrossed by by rivers. And they used to get about by boat, especially in the monsoon, in the rainy season. It was the only way to get about was in a boat. Even if you were children, you could paddle boats mm-hmm. to school and back. And uh, when I first started reading Tagore, this was the landscape that uh, he he created in his work because... Tagore, as a young man, had been put in charge of the family estates. It was a very wealthy family, and they had these huge estates in central and north Bengal. And Tagore, as a young man, lived on a houseboat with his family and travelled up and down these rivers. Mm. And uh, that is where he collected all the material for... His uh, his short stories, and particularly, but of, for his poetry, for his drama, for a great deal of his writing, because all the tenant farmers they would come to the boat and tell him about their lives, make their requests mm. and their complaints to him. <laughs> so he had a great insight into their lives, and they they were the material of so much of his
0: fiction. There's the, there's something in his story about that just r- reminds you of the story of the Buddha of because Tagore did grow up in this very privileged household and I mean I was reading in one of his um, biographies you know his family manor the Chorasanko manor is that how you say that um, was in 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 uh-huh. an in, in an area that was surrounded by poverty and that that he was forbidden to leave it. But then, you know, as a result, he became completely fascinated with that world outside and, and as you say, with the natural world. Well,
1: um, I think there are two aspects of Tagore's writing that strike me very much. One is um, his ability to to look into people's lives to understand their lives with a great intensity with great perceptiveness Mm, mm -hmm. and these were people who were poor had a totally different background from his own but he had insights into them which were so marvelous I don't know if this is the moment where I could refer to uh, one or two stories in particular yes, yes, sure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's one little short story of his which was later filmed by Satyajit Ray and became a great classic of Bengali cinema, actually one of the loveliest films you could see Mm. it's called The Postmaster Mm. and it was inspired by a real postmaster who used to come and visit Tagore and bore him with very long tell stories Mm. (laughs) and the thing about him was that he was this young man from from Calcutta, from the city. And he pined for it. He missed it so much. And he was bored in this little village that he found himself in. And just out of boredom and idleness, he, he started giving lessons to a little servant girl who, who looked after him, fetched water for him, cooked for him. Her name was Ratan. And uh, he falls ill with malaria, she nurses him, but when he recovers he decides he can't stand this life anymore and he packs up and leaves for the city. Mm. And the little girl is devastated. She feels utterly abandoned. He just started teaching her to read and write. It meant so much to her. And then he just walks away. Mm. And... uh, although he does feel a pang of guilt, perhaps, thinks of paying her some money, and she refuses to take it. And he gets onto this boat and sails away and thinks, oh, life is so full of partings, full of death, so what is the point of retracing one's steps? Hmm. And Tagore writes, No such philosophy arose in Ratan's mind wash with tears, she wandered round and round the post office shed. Perhaps her dada Babu would return. Alas for the foolish human heart. And there's another very similar story. again, it's only a few pages long. it's called the notebook. Oh, before you go on, I, I you did a reading of the
0: postmaster, didn't you? for um, I think I listened to that online. Yes I did. Yes, I recorded and recorded it in London. Somewhere. Yes. And you know, I was mm-hmm. also struck with in that story about mm. how um there was great introspection, right? There it was kind of the inner life of this postmaster, this person who had an outer life that that would not be impressive and and it seemed like Tagore was also really working with um you know that that reality of um, the depths that were hidden behind what looked insignificant, to, to, um, from the outside in human society.
1: Oh yes, I think it's full of a kind the aspiration of uh, yes. for another life, yes. which is so uh, prevalent in all his stories. And the other aspect, which is so striking, is his um, is his feeling for the way unhappy situation of women Mm. in India. Mm. The fact that women were mostly denied education, at least in Tagore's time, not now, that they were often considered no better than domestic servants, just slaves to the family, without, um, without being allowed to have any aspiration towards learning or literacy. And yet having much finer sensibilities and greater powers of endurance than the men in the family
0: often. Hmm. And would that also be the significance of the little girl as well, that that he was teaching the little girl? Yes. That? yes. Mm-hmm. For her
1: it had been such a gift that here was somebody who was actually willing to teach her hmm. the letters, teach her how to read and write. It opened up the world to her in a way which it would never have opened otherwise and then it's snatched away from her, right, just right. turned, mm. you know, shut away. And there's this other very poignant story, The Notebook, about a little girl, Uma, who is, who's taught how to read and write, and she's so excited that she starts scribbling over every available surface in their house. She even scribbles over their almanac and account books, and uh, she's reprimanded and punished for that. But then her older brother feels sorry for her and buys her a notebook and she fills it with her writing. She's constantly scribbling in it. But when she's only nine years old, she is married off. Hmm. And um, she tries to continue writing in her book in secret moments. She thinks she's doing it secretly. But her sisters in law spy her, spy on her, and they snatch it from her and show it to her husband, who tears it in two. And to go ends the story with these lines, Uma never had a notebook again. The notebook of her husband, on the other hand, went on accumulating discerning dissertations and thorny theories. There was no one to seize it from him and destroy it for the benefit of mankind. Mm. And, well, it's filled with um, his perception of a very unjust, cruel world, especially for women. But it also has shows so many other aspects of the Tagore's gift. For instance, his... Um, Way of combining both com- compassion and satire, sometimes mm. in just one line, mm. just in one brief a paragraph. And yes, say, I, I've seen a lot of that mm-hmm. as I've been um, as I've been dipping
0: into. Them. Do, do you have any lines like that with you? Or I may have I've written quite a few down. We might come to. I'm one.
1: sorry, I didn't hear
0: you. Do you this? I, I think you're. That's something I've also noticed. This ability yes. to be compassionate and and and
1: yeah, and satirical without being cynical, right? Yes, and they don't seem to contradict each other. No. He seems to combine them in one vision of life. I think he shares this with the Russian writers. Yes, I don't think he did this um, at all uh, consciously, but you ha- you see in him the same vision that Russian writers had of the world, in which cruelty and degradation were combined with tenderness and grace. And that's what makes his um, work so so profound, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, some uh, this is especially true, I think, in his shorter work. Of course, he wrote a great many novels, which are still read in 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 Bengal. Um, but I th- I do agree with the critic Krishna Kripalani, who was a great admirer of his. But he said that Tagore was not Tolstoy or Balzac, the poet, the singer, and the teacher constantly meddled with the novelist. Hmm. There were so many strands of Tagore's thinking that he brought into his writing, and sometimes they quarrelled with each other, hmm. and and you could see the quarrel going on, and it was very interesting. You mean him as a um, him
0: as a novelist, him as a social commentator, and really even a social activist, and him as a poet right. and a musician, and yes. even <laughs> he
1: was even a yes. visualist. He was artist. open to st- all of it; he couldn't shut anything out. And you see it in his novels in particular, how they struggle with each other mm. in a novel like The Home and the World, mm-hmm. which, is, which has at its heart a romantic triangle, but it's set within the framework of the political upheaval of 1915 when Bengal was in turmoil because Lord Gerson was at that moment... Um, And dividing it into two halves, East Bengal and West Bengal. Right, and
0: let's just just for people who might not know that history. I mean, it was the partition uh, of Bengal. It was kind of a philosophy of divide and rule. But it was, and and the population was
1: separated along Hindu and Muslim lines, along religious lines, which proved to be so. So tragic, because it's continued to create so much disruption and so much tragedy. And um, it's a book which is you could call it um, almost Victorian in its realism, Mm. but then there was this other side of Tagore's writing and of his thinking, which was really idealistic and spiritual. Yes, and he could never. Never block that out either. And I think there's a little, it's a tiny book, a small play, called The Post Office, mm-hmm. in which this is best uh, represented. Um, I
0: believe I read in your um, one of your essays that the mm-hmm. post office was, was produced in an orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto a month before the producer and the students of the orphanage were sent to to Treblinka,
1: to to a concentration camp. Is that right? It's a curious little play. Yeah. Uh, It's had a a great effect upon people in different parts of the world. And where does it come from? It's almost almost like a little... uh, breath of air, a little breeze mm. it's, it's so little effect and yet it's deeply affected people mm. where did it come from how did it come about it's about this child Amul who is um, very ill and his doctor has uh, refused to allow him out of his room he's confined to his bed mm. in his room and the Gore wrote about this with such understanding because He'd known imprisonment of as a child, the imprisonment of the spirit, not, not the body. Hmm. One of his earliest memories was of a servant called Sham, who would place me in a selected spot, trace a chalk line around me, and warn me with a solemn face and uplifted finger of the perils of transgressing this circle. Hmm. Whether the danger was physical or mental, I never fully understood, but fear certainly possessed me. (laughs) And when Tagore, as a a little boy, would be confined to his immense and rather gloomy family home in Calcutta, he could only gaze with longing at this limitless thing called outside, Mm. flashes, sounds, and scents of which used to come and touch me through interstices, it seemed to want to beckon me through the shutters, but the variety of gestures, but it was free and I was bound, mm. and there was no way of our meeting. Mm. And he wrote later on in another book, looking back at my childhood, I feel I thought, I feel the thought that recurred most often was that I was surrounded by mystery. Something undreamt of was lurking everywhere. And every day the uppermost question was when oh when would I come across it? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's yeah. in this book and in this child Amul. In the best, in the post office. In the post office. Yes. That he best creates this feeling of this this a longing in this child who's confined to his bed, to his room, who sits at the window watching others who are free to go about. There's a watchman, a fakir, some boys, al girl, shudha, and they tell him about the hills and woods and rivers where he's never been, he's never allowed to go there. And then one day he sees uh, the raja's post office coming up overnight outside his window, flying a golden flag. And the watchman assures him that the raja himself would soon be sending him a letter. And Hamul's longing for that vast and beautiful earth becomes an, intensified into his longing for that letter. Mm. It arrives and he's freed. And. Um, mm. <laughs> I have to say It is a some, very strange yeah. book, and it's had a strange effect on people, as you just said. Yeah. It was produced in the Warsaw Ghetto by a great child psychologist, ah. Janusz Korczak. Who, who knew what was happening in Warsaw and chose chose this play to be dramatized, acted over there. And um, he accompanied the children of Warsaw when they were uh, led to their extinction. And the other time it, the play was produced, um, André Gide read his translation of it into French. Oh. Over the radio in Paris the night before Paris fell to the Nazis. So that's remarkable. It is remarkable because the play itself is so light; it's mm-hmm. almost magical in its manner, and yet people have seen these dark undertones to it. I, yeah, the I dark undertone, yeah. yes. There's something
0: that strikes me that's curious about you when you were talking about one of your. One of those stories that your father told you about Bengal, um which were so magical, kind of a once upon a time place, you mentioned the post the postman and then yes. and then these two we talked about yes. the postmaster, his uh Tagore's short story, and then the post office a little play. What yes. is that? What did the postman and the postmaster and the post office represent, or what do they
1: represent it's It's a very curious image for Tagore to have. <laughs> pursued in this way. Yes. I think it's always a message from elsewhere, from beyond, mm. from outside right. that enters into your remote world where so little ever ever trickles in. Mm. And every time he uses the post office, the postmaster, it's as if he has had a vision of the outside world. Yeah. And... Um, Tagore suffered terribly from the sense of confinement. He was always longing for freedom of light and freedom of space. And he said, I cherish light and space. On his his deathbed, Goethe had wanted more light. Mm. And Tagore said, if I'm capable of expressing my desire, then it will be for more light and more space. Mm. There's something, um, and
0: you've written about this too, how, you know, he won his Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913, and he was just uh, celebrated by people like Yeats and Ezra Pound. And, and you wrote that the West's fascination with him kind of coincided with, as you said, the spirit summed up in Spengler's uh, The Decline of the West, <laughs> that notion. There was something magical about To Gore, but it also seems like there was a way in which um, the 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 way people were enamored with him as a kind of mystical, spiritual writer became a way to dismiss him or reduce him. But but his spirituality, even in in the poetry, um, you know, even in its most in its purest forms, seems to me always to be connected with reality both in the form of the natural world in in very concrete ways and also the human human reality including these the the sorrow that is there and the injustice that is there i don't know
1: i think you're right and it's most obvious in his poetry mm. so much of it is lyrical so much of it is in praise of the natural world yes and he always wanted be surrounded by the natural world. He had a hatred of the city. He was happiest when he was out in the countryside, and uh, most of his poetry grows out of that. But uh, he was, as, as, you, as you know, as anyone who knows to go, knew, he was uh, politically uh, so aware and politically so involved yes so oh, involved the, so engaged yes. yes so the real world was always pressing upon him he wanted to be free of it mm. but it always was a pressure upon him and he had too much of a a conscience and too much of a, an involvement with this country to turn his back on it mm-hmm. but uh, when he was alone when he was by himself he always had this this dream of escape, and uh, I'm I'm also very struck by how much a poet who so loved the natural world, for whom to whom a leaf, a tree, an insect meant so much, um, was also preoccupied so much of the time with death, and how often death seems to have visited him. Beckoned to him, wanted to take him away.
0: Well, he had a lot um, of death, and I mean, he knew a lot of death in people he loved as well, it seems, all the way through that, his life.
1: Yes. He he knew a great deal of tragedy in his life mm-hmm. from the time where he was a very young boy and tragically in love with an older sister in law. And uh, she was only 18 and she committed suicide, mm-hmm. and I don't think he ever got over that because as an old man in his 70s, when he picked up the paintbrush and started to paint, it was her face that he would paint over and over and over Mm. again. Mm. And then in his lifetime, he lost his wife, he lost several of his children, and he knew death. But uh, I'd like to read one poem of his, which Mm. I think is perhaps the most powerful work that he ever did. It's called Arrival. And it's very like the arrival of the letter in this little play. Mm, okay. <laughs> Our work was over for the day and now light was fading. We did not think that anyone would come before the morning. All the houses round about dark and shuttered for the night. One or two amongst us said the king of night is coming. We just laughed at them and said no one will come till morning. And went on Outer doors we seemed to hear a knocking noise. We told ourselves, that's only the wind, they rattle when it blows. Lamps snuffed out throughout the house, time for rest and peacefulness. One or two amongst us said, his heralds are at the door. We just laughed and said, the wind rattles them when it blows. And when at dead of night we heard a strange approaching clangor, we thought... Sleep fuddled as we were, it was only distant thunder. Earth beneath us, live and trembling, stirring as if two were waking. One or two were saying, hear how the wheels of his chariot clatter!" Sleepily, we said, no, no, that's only distant thunder. And when with night still dark, there rose a drumming loud and dear, Somebody called to all, wake up, wake up, delay no more. Everyone shaking now with fright. Arms ramped, arms wrapped close across each heart. Somebody cried in our ears, oh, see his royal standard rear. At last we started up and said, we must delay no more. Oh, where are the lights, the garlands? Where are the signs of celebration? Where is the throne? The king has come. We made no preparation. Alas, what shame, what destiny. No court, no robes, no finery. Somebody cried in our ears, Oh, vain, oh, vain, this lamentation. With empty hands and barren rooms, Offer your celebration. Fling wide the doors and let him in To the lowly conscious boom. In deepest dark the king of night has come With wind and storm thunder crashing across the skies lightning setting the clouds ablaze drag your tattered blankets let the yard be spread with them the king of grief and night has come to our land with wind and storm mm.
0: tell me what that um what tell me what what's so striking to you about that poem what why that how that moves you
1: I think it's um, Tagore's perception of death, Death, his ambivalence about it, Um, the ordinary normal human fear of death, and yet his belief that death in some way um, completed life, brought meaning to it, and that is a theme that he wrote about and used a lot of the time. And at the same time as I read before he hoped on his deathbed to be able to call for more light and space mm-hmm. as if it, another world would open to him then so there was always this awareness in him of a mystery of another world oh. and a, a yearning to somehow reach out and make a connection with it yeah, there's. And I um, think that is what his music must have been about. I don't have much understanding of it, mm. but I think that is why he composed so much music. And even when he became a painter, it was a theme that he pursued.
0: Yeah, there's um, some of the things that really struck me. Um, that he wrote this amazing. He wrote these amazing lines about. Um, Well, really about age. I mean, I guess it was a period when he was near, close to when he died. Just this way he was so uh, engaged with that experience, I guess, and articulate, you know, and poetic about it. I don't know if you, there's this poem, it's called Recovery. Brutal night comes silently, breaks down the loosened bolts of my spent body, enters my insides, starts stealing images of life's dignity. My heart succumbs to the assault of darkness, the shame of defeat, the insult of this fatigue grow intense. You know, that is such an incredible way to write about You know, just this bodily experience of illness and,
1: and aging. Yes, I think he did write it when he was dying. Yes. And, um, and yet he was still... In complete control, he was able to articulate everything about that experience. Yes. Few of us are able to yes. imagine or write about.
0: Yes, and so even in and even in describing, as you know, as he says, the indignity, the ins- insult, yes. he makes something beautiful of that, of that,
1: you know, of that description. Yes, and another thing that strikes me so much about his old age. And his decline, physical decline, mm-hmm. was that his spirit uh, remained almost childlike in its vitality. Mm. One of the very last poems he wrote, one of the very strangest poems he wrote, he, he um, said, Today I imagine the words of countless languages to be suddenly fetiless After long incarceration in the fortress of grammar Suddenly up in rebellion, maddened by the stamp-stamping of unmitigated regimented drilling, they have jumped the constraints of sentence to seek free expression in a world rid of intelligence, snapping the chains of sense in sarcasm and ridicule of literary decorum. Liberated thus, their queer postures and cries appeal only to the ear, They say, we who were born in the gusty tuning of the earth's first out-breathing came into our own as soon as the bloods beat, impelled man's mindless vitality to break into dance in his throat. And he goes on about the way these... Words have broken free and are galloping all around him and free from dancing. the bonds of grammar. <laughs> yes, even the bonds of grammar. All right. And he ends it in my mind I imagine words thus short of their meaning, hordes of them running amuck all day, as if in the sky there were nonsense nursery syllables booming horselum bridleum riderum into the fray. Mm. Imagine a dying man, one of the last (laughs) things he wrote was of this amazing fantasy of freedom. Right. You know, um, you
0: also, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, one of his biographers, um, in this biography that you actually wrote the foreword to, said, you know, Ktagora is found everywhere in Bengali life and yet he is lost and, you know, I learn in particular from your writing that, you know, I mean, is it, is the Indian National Anthem a song that he wrote? Is that, is that true? Yes. The right. Indian National Anthem and the Bangladeshi National and Anthem the Magna- too. And the Bangladeshi National Anthem And also that every Indian school child recites this poem of Tagore, Where the Mind is Without Fear, which is, Beautiful. You, I want to ask you about this. You, I, I, you've mentioned this in a few essays, but you always say every Indian school child recites, however reluctantly, <laughs> where the mind is without fear. Is that reluctance just because
1: this is something memorized? Because it's compelled. Okay. It's a compulsion. Every child yeah. has learn this, yes. <laughs> if, if a child were to come upon it on his own, of course, one did, it would have a very different effect. But yes. if it's prescribed, then one doesn't see it. Do do you
0: know it? Do you have, or do you have it in front of you? I don't have it with me. I mean, I'm just—I'll just read it. Mm -hmm. Just um, yes. Where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depth of truth, where tireless striving stretches its arms toward perfection where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sand of dead habit, where the mind is led forward by thee into ever-widening thought and action, into that heaven of freedom, my Father, let my country awake. That's
1: beautiful. It's a prayer. It is a prayer, and of course, DeGore was writing that as a patriot, and he was also writing it As an educationist, that was the other aspect of his life. He Mm -hmm. so much wanted to change education the way it was in India. He wanted to set students free. He'd suffered himself at the hands of very unimaginative teachers and a very unimaginative way of uh, teaching. And that's why he founded this university, Shanti Niketan, home of peace out in the countryside where there were no examinations, there were no classrooms. The children learned outdoors and were immersed in art and in literature and allowed to follow their own inclinations. Mm-hmm. There was no confinement. And you can see there too, cause constant yearning for freedom political freedom personal freedom
0: and and also his constant um social experimentation right
1: i mean yes, yes he, he did yes, get uh,
0: involved in very political ways during the partition of bengal and then and but he and he did other things
1: like starting this school later on but there seems to be practically no aspect of life that he didn't yeah uh, didn't uh, try to touch, to alter, to somehow um, bring around to his ideal of how things should be. And of course, they so often ended in tragedy that uh, you would think he would have become a very cynical man towards the end of his life. But um, I think he had far too much compassion and far too much imagination to ever allow himself to become truly cynical.
0: There's this, um, this, these words he spoke on his 80th birthday. As I look around, I see the crumbling ruins of civilization like a vast heap of futility, yet I shall not commit the grievous sin of losing faith in man.
1: <laughs> it's true. He very rarely mentioned God. That's yeah. not a word that he... Uh, that figures in his vocabulary, yeah. he really believed in uh, in in man in the divinity of man hmm. or the divinity that man is capable of, although so re- rarely achieves
0: hmm. i wonder and i'm just I'm just grasping her. I wonder if there's if there's something in Tagore about. So I'll just say it this way: I was with I was with a bunch of scientists um, last week, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I I enjoy having a conversation with scientists. Uh, using a phrase that uh, that I heard from another scientist years ago about the spirituality of a scientist, scientist, you know whether that is whether that is uh, in in any way traditionally religious or not, the spiritual sensibility of a scientist, and and it struck me that there's something in Tagore. There's some spiritual sensibility of the artist. Um, of the writer that he captures some complexity Uh, I don't know does that how how does that strike you that idea Um,
1: yes I think one can't speak of Tagore as a traditional Hindu which he simply wasn't Mm -hmm. Um, although he was steeped in Vedic literature and uh, Obviously, it it had a profound effect upon him. Nobody could ever have called him a traditionalist when it came to religion. For one thing, the Tagore family uh, came from a sect of reformist Hindus, Um, not traditional Hindus. But Tagore, more than anyone else, rarely spoke of religion in the way that Religious leaders would speak. It was always in a very abstract and philosophical manner. And uh, I think he was fascinated by science himself. Yes. Um, right. The, the series of conversations that he had with Einstein. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure what Einstein made of them, but obviously <laughs> they meant a great deal to. To go to be able to discuss the philosophy of science and of being. Yes.
0: That was also a bit of a of his the the kind of uh creative, I think, mutually admiring tension of his relationship with Gandhi. Um when Gandhi um for example, when was that, the the earthquake in Bihar in nineteen thirty four? He, he, he de- declared that that was some kind of natural divine retribution for the sin of untouchability, that it was a form of karma. And, and Tagore said that that was unscientific and, and, and unreasonable and that physical events had physical causes, even though he passionately shared Gandhi's uh,
1: objection to untouchability. I think his relationship with Gandhi was um, tremendously interesting one. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, the book about the relationship hasn't yet been written mm. um, because they were so drawn to each other, they had so much regard, respect for each other, but they could never think alike. Yeah. Gandhi was in a way far more of a, uh, a traditional... Conservative Hindu uh, than Tagore was, but at the same time their aspirations were very similar. Yes, both wanted freedom, both wanted independence certainly, but um, it's very strange that they weren't able to work together.
0: Although I was fascinated to read that when Gandhi was fasting. Uh, again, within his campaign to eradicate untouchability in the 1930s, that Tagore traveled to be with him and that he led the, the group in prayer when Gandhi broke the fast. And I read that he, he read these lines from, from his book of poems, which won him the Nobel Prize. Um, it's beautiful again. When my heart is dry and parched, come with a merciful shower. When grace has departed from life, come with a
1: burst of song. Really I think that must be the most wonderful um, the most wonderful reverence anyone could have shown Gandhi, it must surely have stirred him deeply yeah. must have meant a great deal to him but uh, sadly they couldn't work together uh, part of Tagore remained an intellectual, wouldn't allow him st- to go along with Gandhi's way of thinking and yet there were things that Gandhi did that Tagore would not have been capable of doing Yeah, the way Gandhi was able to approach people to live on their level um, to see life as a common man sees it I don't think Tagore was capable of that mm.
0: Gandhi, Gandhi has come down in history in a way that Tagore has not I in an essay you wrote about him, you you posed this question. You said it seems an exercise worth undertaking to remove these dusty veils from Tagore's reputation and re examine his work and see if the wheel has not turned, making it highly relevant once again. I I want you to just talk a little bit as we as we finish about, about your sense of Tagore's relevance in the world now and how that know how that might be interesting to recover
1: not we know Tagore as a writer and the strange thing is that i think it's actually his writing that comes in between um uh, the understanding of Tagore's thinking hmm. his life his philosophy it could be it could be the language that he used he wrote in bengali always yes and bengali is a very very literary language it's a very effusive language it's full of metaphor and imagery and it translates poorly it translates very poorly especially in poetry and the translations we have are mostly uh, mostly done in victorian times so they have a sort of a Dustiness or fustiness right. of Victoriana about them. And I wonder if that language isn't, isn't um, difficult for us. It creates a barrier difficult for us to cross now. I think he is able to affect people more deeply in a way through music, through mm-hmm. his painting, mm-hmm. through his thinking, his actions actions like his nationalistic activities, the founding of the school at Shantiniketan. Um, But it's very strange. The language itself seems to be difficult for a reader to break through, a reader today in our times.
0: Isn't that interesting that you're saying Mm. that and that his final poem was the one you read about language being bound and incarcerated within its own structures? Yes, as though
1: he himself were aware of that. Yes. As though it were, weren't his real metier, that he wished he had another. And in fact, I think he did wish ardently that he had another, which is why so late in life, in his 70s, 80s, he started painting. And once he started, he couldn't stop. He painted compulsively. Hmm. What, what does Tagore
0: mean to you? I mean, I'm just going to ask a question this way. How does his imprint on the world, to kind of use the way Einstein spoke about what happens after we die, you know, Tagore's legacy, which continues to roll around in the world in many forms, I mean, how does it nourish you um, in your 21st century life?
1: Um, I do think that he must be The most Indian of all Indian writers. Um, As I say, I was never made to read Tagore as a child. My father never taught me the language. He never spoke of Tagore. He may have spoken of him, but not very much. And um, yet when I started writing, and this was before I had read Tagore, I was writing on many of the same themes. The confinement of women, the, the denial of freedom, of, yes. of free thinking uh, to women, especially. But uh, also the many other things that halt and thwart uh, life in India. Uh, so that I think many Indians suffer from this sense, this feeling that one is caught in a trap and that one cannot possibly break free of it. And I think it's a, what really creates this whole philosophy of fatalism mm. that's so prevalent in India. But I was using all these same themes. I was also writing about them before i had ever read go. And when I read his work, I realized this was nothing um, unique to me, uh, It was the way we did think and feel in India. No one had ever written about it as profoundly or powerfully as to go. Hmm. So I do think it's very tragic that he's no longer read, that somehow uh, a reader no longer feels the same connection with him because his work is there, it hasn't changed, nor has India really changed... Not that much, (laughs) really. Would you say that?
0: Because you know, I think someone on the outside might say, "Well, he was writing." I mean, his his his, his, the struggle for him was independence from the British Empire, and and uh, and the India of uh, you know, um, I don't know, seventy how many seventy years after his death is you would many
1: would say is radically transformed. Well, the independence movement was only one of the themes mm-hmm. that occupied him, and uh, freedom, on the whole, freedom in a much larger sense, was his real theme. I think, and that remained so. Mm-hmm. And
0: and you think of and if you think about the contemporary India or just contemporary humanity, um, you're saying freedom. Freedom as something that's larger than political
1: status. Is that what you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think India still suffers from the kind of orthodoxy, the the superstition, the fatalism, uh, many of the things that um, Tagore rebelled against and wanted to have his students, his readers uh, Mm abandon so that they could proceed. I think those are still present. What what else would
0: you like to say? Anything else you'd like to add that feels important, something important to you about Tagore that we haven't touched on?
1: Um, No, I've I've talked about these short stories and Mm -hmm. the play that I'd wanted to talk about Um, and also the fact that if you do pick up to go, if you can bring yourself to overcome a resistance to that definitely Victorian, old-fashioned, um, out-of-fashion <laughs> manner of writing, now you do break through to a mind that is so vast and so complex that uh, it it really re- it really does ask of one uh, a new way of study, a new way of um, finding how to relate to his work Mm. yes
0: okay Mm -hmm. oh okay yeah yeah um, just, just one last question. Um, yeah, y- your daughter is also a celebrated writer. It's a wonderful thing. The two of you. Um, have you? Did you introduce her to Tagore in a way that your father didn't introduce your fa-
1: parents didn't introduce you to Tagore? Well, certainly she would see me reading Tagore. She saw the books that I have of okay. his on my bookshelves. Yeah, I don't think he particularly interests her, but it's so interesting that. Um, When she wrote her first book, a lot of critics and readers said um, that uh, her work was very similar to that of another Indian writer, R.K. Narayan, and she had never read R.K. Narayan at that time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I think there must be something we all have in common. Right. (laughs) Uh, It's our material, it's our themes, but perhaps it's also a particularly... Indian way of thinking and being and mm. writing and speaking yeah. that we all do share. Mm. Oh well, thank
0: you so much. Uh, it's been really just uh, wonderful, actually. Your voice is beautiful and so gentle and powerful at once, and it's really amazing to sit here and have you coming into my headphones. So thank you, and we'll oh, we'll you let so you much. know. Um, it's been beautiful. So we will we'll let you know what's happening with this and. Uh, Um,
1: Yeah, again, I'm very grateful for you being part of this. I'd be very interested to see or or hear the program when you do put it together. I'm sure it'll be fascinating. We'll let you know. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.